What's up, my friends? Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you, as always. So glad to be with you guys. So today is podcast 136, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, where we're going to see Paul give not only a defense of his innocence, but he provides a powerful defense of the gospel. So if you've ever been placed in a position when you've had to give a defense of what it is you believe, let's learn a thing or two about Paul here on today's podcast. So grab your Bibles and let's turn to Acts chapter 23. Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. So here in Acts chapter 23, we are now at a point where Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin and he's going to give a defense of his actions. So he's going to be evaluating his entire ministry, really kind of a a nutshell approach, if you will. But he's going to give a presentation to, again, the elite leaders of the day. Now, remember, Paul was once like these people years ago, but now he has seen the light. And he's going to argue how Christianity has stemmed from Judaism. So this is significant because what he's going to do is he's going to be showing them that Christianity is rooted in Judaism. Therefore, what Jesus taught is, in fact, the fulfillment of the law. So he's going to show that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and through his death and resurrection, how he offers new life for not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So that's where we pick things up now here in Acts chapter 23. But before we jump into it again, as always, you can go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcasts. All the information is available for you guys to check out. And also... If you have any questions, matter of fact, this past week, I was responding to uh, several questions that many people actually had, and I just love receiving your guys' prayer requests and any biblical or theological or apologetic questions you guys have. So send that at info at standstrongministries.org. And if you have not been aware, my, my latest book, Challenging Conversations, a practical guide to discuss controversial topics in the church is now available through Baker Books. So where books are sold, take advantage of that. And if you are listening and you're a faithful listener or you're watching on YouTube right now, thank you guys for your continual support and prayers. So appreciate it. I mean, it just means so much to me every time I'm able to record these things to provide biblical content to help you guys stand strong in your faith. And if you've gotten the book, man, thank you so much for your support and taking getting the book. And if you can... I'd also greatly appreciate it if people hear about what how the book has changed your life. Again, info at standstrongministries.org, but we'd also appreciate you sending us a review or putting, I should say, a review on Amazon and, and other places like Barnes & Noble, etc. Those are always a great way for us to continue to spread the word. And I'm just so humbled to tell you guys that since it's been released these past few weeks, it's hit number one multiple times, not just in paperback, but also Kindle and also in the Christian audio and in Christian apologetics and Christian theology. So uh, it's just such a blessing. And I hope the the, the book is just a, a, a blessing to you as well as we cover mental illness, as we talk about substance abuse, we deal with forms of sexuality, premarital sex, divorce and remarriage, abortion, politics, racism, 
it's a heavy, heavy book, but it, the, 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 the desire that we have here in the ministry at Stand Strong Ministries is to help Christians just like you know what it is you believe in, how you are to effectively engage the culture that we live in today. And so to prepare you, as I refer to as an advocator of truth, not an avoider, not an aggressor, but a conversant Christian who's able to love people by speaking truth to them. So again, get your copy, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. So with that being said, my friends, let's actually pick up in chapter 22, verse 30, where it says, but on the next day, desiring to know um, why he was being accused by the Jews, he, uh, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council, that is the Sanhedrin, to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sinning to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So right off the bat, here we see Lysias, remember, in following the law, he allowed Paul, who was a Roman citizen, to hear the charges that were brought against him by the Sanhedrin. However, as commander, Lysias had to walk a fine line with the Jewish council, because remember, that's one of the reasons he was placed there, was to appease the Jews, because there was constant bickering and fighting that was going on between them, and of course, wars, and there was a lot of zealots that are out there, they're fighting against the, the Roman Empire. And so he could order the Jews to give an explanation of the rioting, but he didn't want to interfere uh, with their own deliberations. So again, th there was a fine line there. So a lot of these officials did not know how to do that, and therefore they did not last very long. And so Paul, when he's presented before the Sanhedrin, he employs a common defense in his opening by maintaining his innocence before God. So when he says, brothers, I've lived my life before God. So notice how he immediately engages the audience. Remember, that is something that we have seen in chapter 22 in the last podcast in podcast 135. And matter of fact, that was broken up in two different parts. So podcast 134 and 35. But that's something that's interesting about Paul. And that's something that we have to glean from him, that we have to learn from him, how we need to be able to know the audience of people that we are to minister to. And so the way, he would, and the way in which he opens his argument is very formal in how he employs God in, in this terminology he uses all with good conscience, meaning obtaining the law, looking through the law, I have not been found guilty. So the phrase, uh, again, literally, that I have lived my life before God means I have lived as a citizen before God. So not just, remember, he's, he is arguing, I'm a Roman citizen, and of course he is a Jew. He is one of them, if you go back to Philippians chapter 3, and yet he's saying, according to, again, the Old Testament, we call it, the Jewish scriptures, the totality of the law, I have walked blamelessly before God. 
This is something that Paul repeatedly talked about in his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. So Paul was not implying, of course, that he was without sin, but he was talking about how he's a new man in Christ. That's why. Remember before he said, I was zealous to do good works and there was nobody who could do what I did and how um, not just effort, effortlessly that it was for him to achieve a status that was very superior um, as a Pharisee, but he refers to himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. But he says, that's not why I remain perfect or blameless before God. He's saying, I remain, I am perfect before God because of Christ, because of Christ's atonement, because I'm a new creation, that God sees me as blameless before him because of Christ. That is Christ's grace and that is fulfilled truth. So in a way, he comes off in a Jewish uh, tone, but he's also coming as a Christian. Now, Paul slapped because he's making a bold statement. Now, remember Ananias, this is the high priest who is very violent. Now, this is not the one, by the way, that's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1, and also chapter 9, verse 10, who aligned himself with the Romans around AD 47 through 58. This is a different high priest. The, the IVP New Testament commentary series writes this, quote, what triggers the high priest's physical response is, number one, Paul's manner of speaking, his simple form of address, or impolite, so his impolite speaking out of turn, the content of Paul's confession, which was considered to be arrogant, even blasphemous, it was an assertion that he can be a good Jew though now he is a Christian, or number three, the high priest's frustration with Paul's holy boldness as he bears witness to the truth, leaving the Jewish uh, clerk at loss for words. Therefore, ordering Paul to be slapped is very much in character for this high priest, who was the son of Nedabaeus, I hope I'm saying that right, who served around, again, 80, 47 through 59. So he was both greedy and ruthlessly violent, using beatings to exhort or to, excuse me, to extort tithes from common priest's allotment and leaving them destitute, end quote. And now that also comes from Josephus in Jewish antiquities. So th we have information about this high priest who has Paul slapped. Now, in a way, Paul's words in response to Ananias when he says, God is going to strike you, were prophetic because he would eventually be killed by Jewish freedom fighters. That's interesting if you think about it. So he's pretending like he's in complete and total control by the way they're treating Paul. But Paul, I do believe, is giving him a, re a prophetic response and referring to him as a whitewashed wall. So now that you think about being disrespectful, before he was just saying, in Christ, I am blameless because Christ fulfilled the law. And I put my faith and trust in him as my savior. But then he gives a prophetic word and calls them out it says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? When Christ, who fulfilled the law, who is not a lawbreaker, has given me eternal life and offering it to everyone who puts their faith and trust in him, and you're saying that you are better than Christ, you're better than God essentially, yet you're supposed to be honoring God. And so he calls them out, not just giving this prophetic word about his death that will come by the hands of freedom fighters, which took place, by the way, in AD 66, but that he also calls them out of the abuse of the Jewish law 
by presuming that he's guilty before having a chance to even defend his innocence. So it's like we would say today in America that you're guilty before proven guilt, before uh, being proven innocent. No, it's innocent until being proven guilty. And that's precisely the case in point that Paul is pointing out here. Paul may have been referring possibly to Leviticus actually 19 verse 15, which reads, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So that's, that's probably where Paul's coming from, showing them the perversity of the law, and he's calling them out. And that's important, my friends, because I think oftentimes there is going to be a form of abuse in our lives, and we have to make sure that we are consistently laying before God the truth that we are following, saying, God, I'm, I'm living it out. And as such, I, want, I need to call out the abuse. And when you see the abuse out there, you have to do what God has called you to do. I think oftentimes what happens is people ignore it. Paul could have just placated to them. Paul could have just surrendered and submitted and done whatever they asked him to do so he could be possibly freed, right? Have a better chance, a greater chance of being freed. But he chooses not to do that. He calls out the perversity. And right there, my friends, I think that's a reminder that we need to call out the perversity. So ask yourself, what kind of perversity are you seeing in your life right now? And what are you doing about it? Are you calling it out? Have you become complacent about it? Have you gotten to a point where you've been so discouraged or you're not enlightened, if you will, over what God is doing because you're not considering the work of God or you think that God is being pushed out or you're seeing the darkness and it's getting to a point where what's the use? What's the use of speaking up? I just, matter of fact, was having a conversation with somebody uh, recently, and it was regarding some LGBT issues, and the people on that side had an agenda, and they were speaking forcefully by pushing people to accept their lifestyles, their choices, their sexual orientation, however you want to define it. And one of the Christians listened and didn't say anything in return. And he was being bullied. When you review it afterwards, he was being kind and cordial, but he was also being bullied and he didn't do anything about it. And so in the process, they were restricting him to express himself and forcing him to support their sexual expressions. And there's times, my friends, as Christians, we have to call this stuff out. And so that's what Paul does. He then realizes, okay, this, I'm calling it out. But now there's another tactic that he employs here that is very important for us to see. Because in verse 6, we're told that he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And so what he does is he he cries out to the councils, his brothers, I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. So this is interesting because what, in, what Paul does, in fact, is he, after being struck before the Sanhedrin, so he's disrespected and shown that they don't care. They, they already presume him or assume him, I should say, to be guilty. And they have no consideration whatsoever to hear him out, um, these indictments that have been placed on him, they already said they're evidence uh, to convict him. 
So he knows that this is a bad situation. And sometimes when we're in bad situations, you kind of try a little bit, then you have to maybe employ a different tactic. So what he does is he realized that he need to adjust his strategy if he were gonna if he was gonna survive the hearing. So what does he do? So Paul decides to cause a division within the Sanhedrin because he's he again he notices that again one side you have Sadducees who are the majority and the other side you have the Pharisees and so he cites his Pharisaism that is he cites his belief in the resurrection because the Pharisees supported the resurrection but the Sadducees didn't and so this is important because again when you go back to verse 7 when he said this a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. And they said, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the, tr the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you were testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then it continues now to, to see that Paul, there's going to be a plot we're going to see in a minute that he's going to be murdered as a result of this. So let me just go back though real quickly um, after Paul cites this whole thing about the resurrection and seeing again that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the spirit. But of course, the Pharisees do. So you remember the Sadducees, they held only to the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which in their mind, again, when you look at the Torah, does not clearly teach about bodily resurrection. No matter of fact, that's something that's cited in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40, where you see this encounter that Jesus has with the religious leaders. So despite the fact that Paul had betrayed the Sanhedrin, remember, by converting to Christianity, it's interesting, though, that the Pharisees, and knowing the history of Saul of Tarsus when he was a Pharisee, they momentarily defend him because of their shared supernatural beliefs. And this is important because, remember, they don't embrace, obviously, Paul's conversion. They don't embrace his new beliefs that he has as a, we would refer to today, a Christian. But nevertheless, he found common ground even among some of his enemies. Now, there was more favorability on the Pharisee side than the Sadducee side. And so he took advantage of that. And so then this debate is no longer between Paul and the Sanhedrin. It's now between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because um, soon they, 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 it just got out of hand quickly. And more than likely, Paul, you know, if this thing continued, he probably would have been probably executed. They probably would have came down on him quickly and made a decision. And of course, you know, they would have murdered him. They would have killed him illegally because they didn't have the right to do that under Roman rule. Now, Paul would have been murdered, of course, if he wasn't saved by Lysias when the Roman soldiers came in there and intervened, when the Jewish mob was after him to kill him. But this is also interesting before we jump in verse 12, because that following night, we're told, the Lord stood by Paul. Isn't that amazing? You think about it? 
The Lord appears to Paul himself. We always think about Jesus appearing to him just in the road to Emmaus in Acts chapter 9. But here, Jesus appears to him and assures Paul that his life will not end in Jerusalem, but the great things that he has in store for him will happen and great things away for him in Rome. Now, of course, Paul, he'll be chained in Rome, but that's going to afford him an opportunity to write many of the inspired letters. And it's going, to it's going to be a great opportunity for many people to visit him where he's going to be able to coordinate with many fellow believers and spreading the gospel, expanding churches, and continuing to defend the faith. So now let's jump to the second part in our discussion this morning. And it has to do with Paul. There's a plot that Paul is going to be murdered in chapter 23, beginning here in verse 12, where it says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath called down. That means a divine curse or judgment if the vow was broken. So these people are totally committed to seeing this thing through. So the oath was this, that they would neither eat nor drink. Notice till they had killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this, this conspiracy and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. That's the Chilarch, Chiliarch, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So there's a lot here with this plot to murder Paul. Notice there are about 40 men, we're told, by Luke, who took an oath. They took this vow to have Paul killed. So more than likely, these were not just hired individuals, but they were probably zealots or what we would refer today as terrorists who would later, I believe these are the same type of people who would later revolt against Rome in the mid-60s. Now, again, God protects Paul because their plot to have Paul killed is exposed, not to the Pharisees, notice, not to the scribes, but to the chief priests and the elders. Now, remember, the elders are the Sadducees. So, this is interesting because this is not necessarily the whole entire Sanhedrin, the 70 plus members to execute this plot. It's the Sadducees. So they break away from the Pharisees because of that huge debate. And this is what Luke does is he's revealing, again, this hatred that the Jews not only had for Paul, 
but also that the Jews had for one another. So they're a very divided group of people if you think about it. Now, this is also interesting because we're told that the son of Paul's sister, I mean, where in Scripture have you ever heard of Paul's family? This is actually really cool because it, it, it's a way that Luke is showing, revealing to us, again, that there were actually family members that Paul had. We usually just talk about, you know, people that he ministered to, you know, many of his colleagues like Epaphras and Titus and Barnabas and Luke himself who traveled with him as his physician and colleague and friend. But there's also mentioning of his family. So this is the only direct, here in verse 16, let me read it again. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. This is the only direct mentioning of a relative of Paul's in Acts and also in his letters. Now, there's other possible passages in the Bible that may refer to Paul's relatives, and that's in Romans chapter 16. You have verse 7, verse 11, and verse 21. But here we see in verse 17, it says, Paul called out one of the satyrians, so he hears the news from his nephew. And so the fact that the, the, the tribune believed Paul's nephew uh, is interesting because I think what it does is it reveals that the Romans knew how evil and treacherous who was the high priest, Ananias. They, oh, yeah. Yeah, this actually makes sense. And this is actually dangerous because when you have the Sanhedrin uh, plot to do something like this by taking out one of their own without the, the consent of the Romans, this could lead to disaster. But they buy into what Paul's nephew says. Now, this will be the second time that the Romans, again, so this is interesting because the Pharisees back and support Paul, and he's not going to be executed right then and there because the Sanhedrin's not going to vote in favor to have him as a blasphemer, therefore stoned to death. And then as we saw in Acts chapter 22, he's spared by the Romans. Now we're seeing a second time here that they intervene to save Paul's life. So from now on, Paul, this is also interesting, my friends, because at this point in time here in Acts chapter 23, from this point on, Paul will be referred to as a prisoner for Christ. And let me give you several passages of scripture, as I always like to do, to give you, you know, a lot of information from the standpoint of where scripture refers to these other things. When you see this in, in Acts 23, verse 18, you see in chapter 25, verse 14, you also see in chapter 25, verse 27, he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and finally in chapter, or excuse me, because Philemon is just one chapter, but verse 1 and also verse 9. So again, this was a reoccurring phrase or title that Paul gives himself, and it starts right here. So the tribune, they dispatched their own secret plans to protect Paul and his nephew from harm. So now let's see what happens in chapter 23, beginning in verse 23 to verse 35, where Paul is rushed out of Jerusalem for his own protection. So this says here in verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor, who is the Roman procreator. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius 
Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was not disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, that's the capital of Judea, and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's Herod the Great, that he had built that place. So let's look at this third and final section here on today's podcast, where Paul's rushed out of Jerusalem for his protection. Now notice Lysias, who is the commander, he takes action. And what he does is he immediately calls up the infantry to protect Paul. This is why I believe, as I mentioned before, that the 40 men who took an oath, a vow, not to eat or drink anything until they can kill Paul, were zealots, were terrorist people. So remember, um, the centurion believes the plot to have Paul executed because they know how evil Ananias is. And they immediately call up an infantry to protect Paul, who is a Roman citizen, from being murdered by these zealots because these people were very threatening. And so these are strong indications of the threat that Paul was facing right now. And thank God, out of nowhere, his nephew comes on scene and happens to hear about this information. That's amazing. That's divine protection from God. And you wonder, has that ever taken place in your life? I mean, think about it. When were times in your life, I mean, there's no explanation other than that God sent an angel. I mean, in this case, we know that the Lord himself appears to Paul and says, hey, don't worry about this stuff. I got your back. And then immediately he sends his nephew who hears about this information, tells his uncle, then tells the centurions. And then before you know it, they're taking him out of Jerusalem to protect him again after God already protected him against the Jewish mob, after God already protected him from the Sanhedrin, having him stoned to death because they're going to they're gonna, uh, find him guilty of blasphemy. I mean, this, you guys, is amazing stuff as, as Christians. How often are we aware of what God is doing in and through us? I mean, there's been times I can tell you traveling and speaking and sharing the gospel when God has revealed himself in powerful ways or someone gives a prophetic word to me or God protects me physically from harm, whether it's you know, flying in the plane or driving in a car or, or some, you know, freaky, scary individual who's, you know, trying to get access to me. I mean, there, there's just so many of these occurrences and I'm sure you have stories to tell. So when we read the Bible and we see this with Paul, we can't just say, oh, it's just an exception because he was an apostle. 
No, God protects his people, my friends. So the soldiers, they get a head start here. They want to avoid an ambush by the zealots. They know that they're plotting to take Paul and pretending that the Sanhedrin wants to objectively hear his case again. But they don't know the extent of the plot. And so they don't want to take any risk. And so they remove Paul from Jerusalem and they do it swiftly so that their plot, right, their strategy, their plan, if you will, to get Paul out of there isn't leaked. Now, this place, Antipatris, this was named after Herod, the great's father, uh, Antipater. Uh, this was the city um, that, was a, that was a military outpost, meaning like it was a relay station that was 30 to 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So again, in that time, that was a difficult journey to make, especially with the amount of people that they were going to be sending to protect Paul. Now, Anti um, Antonius Felix, he, was he, was, um, he governed the region of Judea for about eight years, so about 80-52 to 80-60. And so he asked to know what the providence that Paul came from. And the reason that he wanted to know that it was because he wanted to ensure that he was able to, you know, um, oversee this kind of thing. Now, what's also important that I want to make note before we end this podcast is when you go back to Lysias, uh, Lysias's uh, letter to Felix, it's interesting that Luke knew the contents of the letter. It doesn't say how he knew it, but he, was, he exposes what he believes to be uh, a person, in this case, Paul, who is, has been indicted, but he doesn't see any evidence of any type of conviction. And notice um, in that letter, uh, Lysis conveniently leaves out the fact that he was, he was going to have Paul flogged without recognizing that he was a Roman citizen. He pretends like he did everything right. And so now when, he, when Felix gets this letter, he wants to make sure that, that everything's legit because of all this problems with the Jewish people. Again, he's got to walk a fine line himself because a lot of things would eventually get to Caesar. And so they want to make sure that they were conducting themselves in a manner that was representing Caesar in the Roman law respectfully. Now, Herod's Praetorium, Paul will remain here at this place that we're told for two years. So for two years, he's going to be in Herod's palace by the sea. And this is where Paul will write many of his letters. So this is a very significant time. Now, obviously, Luke doesn't go in great detail about this period of time, but we know it's at this time that Paul's going to write a lot of the prison letters. Let me read to you real quickly, New King James Version Study Bible regarding this, this portion of Scripture. It writes, quote, Felix had been a slave, but had gained the status of freed man under the emperor Claudius. Because Felix's brother was a friend of the emperor, Felix's political career blossomed, even though he was not popular among his peers. Felix was known from, for indulging in every kind of lust, and the writer Tacitus described him as exercising the powers of a king with the character of a slave, end quote. So this is important because as we follow the life of Paul, we encounter characters like people in the Sanhedrin, like Lysias, and here with Felix. 
and you see how corrupt many of these people were. And you guys, that's the point in this whole thing in Scripture. The point is, when you and I give a defense of our faith as a Christian, we are going to have a lot of people who live certain lifestyles that maybe you don't live, or maybe you did live before you came to know Christ, and God freed you from that. And so you have such a burden to tell people about Jesus. But like Paul, God's going to protect you. God's going to use you. And so whether it's before uh, religious leaders, a cult, um, government officials, politicians, even royalty, I mean, think about all the people that God put in front of Paul. I don't know. I don't know your story and what God has called you to do. And I pray you do. I pray you're able to know what God has called you to do. But just be reminded when we study this that God can use you in a great and mighty way if you let him and that you will be, you will be presenting the gospel. And I pray you would do it with great boldness. You'll be presenting the gospel in front of people who are completely and totally out of the realm of how you live. You know, in the last few years, and I want to explain a little bit what I mean by that. In the last few years, I have seen God put people in my life that I never thought that I would have a relationship with. One, because of their particular spiritual beliefs, they're not Christian. Uh, two, because of maybe their sexual orientation um, or their atheists or even some people who have a form of satanic worship or new spirituality or are very, very liberal in their particular views and they are, you know, pro they're for pro, you know, they're pro-abortionists, you know, and all these other type of things. But you know what? God gives them a great love to have for them. And sometimes we can say, oh, it's all over because these people are not going to be objective because they're just filled with lust. They're of the world. That may be the case. But let God work. Let God work through you. And so by just looking at the defense of how Paul was able to know his audience and prevail because he trusted God, don't give up. I pray that you continue to prevail. You continue to fight the good fight of faith. You continue to share your faith no matter what because we need more Christians like you who are not just listening to podcasts like this to get grounded in God's word, to stand strong, but having done so to go out in the world and to engage this culture that is lost. So I want to thank you guys for watching and for listening to this podcast today. Make sure that if you are a follower of this podcast, that you follow us on SoundCloud or any other platform that you get your podcast. Go to YouTube, Jason P. Jimenez, and you can click on my podcast channel, or excuse me, my YouTube channel, and like the channel. Subscribe to the channel, like this video, share it with your friends, hit that bell so you continue to get notifications like this one as you follow along through the book of Acts. So thank you guys again for listening, for watching. I love you guys. This was a great time for us just to be challenged about how we can continue to defend the faith. And I pray you're doing that. I pray that you continue to follow the advice that Peter gave us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that no matter whatever happens in your life, when someone gives you when someone gives you a challenge or when somebody throws out an objection that you will be ready to give a defense that you'll give them an answer and you'll do it in love so until next time keep standing strong my friends for more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries visit us at standstrongministries.org thank you for listening 
and keep standing strong in the Word of God.